From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. It may sound like the stuff of science fiction, but it's now possible. A face transplant has been performed right here at the Mayo Clinic. We'll learn more about the operation from the surgeons who performed the transplant. We were rehearsing and practicing this procedure for 50 Saturdays over the last three and a half years. None of us were nervous. None of us felt uncomfortable. Every member of the team knew exactly what they were supposed to do. We went into this procedure with those two rooms going, one preparing and one procuring. Also on the program, if you're a parent, it's a battle you probably fight. Kids and screen time. We'll discuss with the Mayo Clinic expert. And the difficult but important topic of domestic abuse. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. You know, when you hear the word transplant, you immediately think about an organ like the heart or the liver or the kidney or even a lung. But transplant surgery is actually now possible in exciting new areas, including the hands and even the face. The goal of face transplant is to restore normal anatomy and improve function as much as possible for patients who have facial injuries as a result of burns, trauma, gunshots, or some congenital abnormality, something they're born with. Mayo Clinic recently performed a face transplant, removing a great portion of a donor's face and attaching it onto a patient who had previously suffered a devastating facial injury. Here to share the story are the surgical director of the Mayo Clinic Assam and Dalal Obeid Center for Reconstructive Transplant Surgery, Dr. Samir Mardini, and the medical director for the program, Dr. Hatim Amur. Welcome both of you to the program. It's an amazing story. We're so anxious to hear more about it. Thank you so much for allowing us to be here to join you on this. Face transplantation is a reality. It's here. It seems to be here to stay. There's been about 37, 38 done around the world, and it's producing great results in patients that need it. This is the first one at Mayo Clinic, though? This is the first one at Mayo Clinic. Okay. The goal of this procedure for our patient was to restore function more than anything else, but also to benefit from restoration of the form of the face so that he can be a normal human being. Is he someone who is uh, injured? Uh, So our patient is a wonderful gentleman that I met 10 years ago. Uh, when I first came to Mayo Clinic, he came in as a trauma victim, uh, and he suffered a injury to his face. And at the time, we ended up restoring the jaw. Uh, we used fibula, foam small in the ball leg, of the leg, mm-hmm. small ball in the leg, with the vessels reconnected that created his lower jaw. And then we ended up using another vascularized bone to restore his upper jaw. Vascularized bone meaning uh, the bone with its blood supply. With its blood supply, better so chance of healing. Operations, mm-hmm. better chance of healings a better chance of uh, incorporating into his uh, normal form, but he still had a severely deformed face. And he was doing well. He's a wonderful guy who went back and started working again and incorporated back into life. And we, we I kept on seeing him maybe once a year, once every other For year. For 10 years, you said? For 10 years. Hmm. And uh, over about four and a half, five years ago, um, we were starting to look at face transplantation and seeing that if that's something that we want to do here at Mayo Clinic. And uh, at that time, we were visiting our whole team, including Dr. Amer. We were visiting other centers around the world that have done face transplantation t- to learn about the intricate details of the procedures, the issues that are involved in, in, in face transplantation. What are the things that the patients 
what are the issues that they go through. And we had the fortune of making good friends with, the, with many of the surgeons around the world, and we've met some of the patients as well. So we brought that up to our patient and just said, look, this is something that we're looking at. You might want to look at it. You might want to Google and try to learn as much as you can about it. We're not saying that this is the procedure for you. We're not offering it to you at this point, but I want you to have time to look at this and, and study it with us, and, and maybe one day we'll consider this procedure for you. Where did you go? Where did you visit? The procedure was first done in France, and there are two teams there. One team had done seven of them, Dr. Lentieri's team, and then the other had done three, and that's Dr. Duvochel and DuBernard's team. So, Dr. Muir, uh, what's your role in this? Do you have to give your blessing for this, mm-hmm. or uh, you went on the, you went around and looked, and you said, "Yeah, but I think it's a reasonable idea." Because so, it's tough to hold a surgeon down sometimes. But yeah, <laughs> you gave your your blessing to this whole uh, to project. I think we're very fortunate because we do actually have very thoughtful uh, surgeons. They didn't want to just go ahead and do it. They sure. wanted to do it for the right patient mm-hmm. after they have enough information and whether or not it will benefit this particular patient. So my, by training, I'm a transplant nephrologist, and that's my profession most of the time. I take care of transplant recipients, mainly kidney and pancreas recipients, both before, during, and after the surgery. So my role with reconstructive transplantation is to evaluate potential candidates from a medical perspective to better understand how they will be able to tolerate the immune suppression and how to match them with prospective donors from an immunological uh, perspective. When you say immune suppression, you're talking about the drugs to keep the body from rejecting the transplant. Correct. At this time, uh, anyone who receives a allograft, which is a tissue graft, uh, whether it's an organ or tissue such as a face or an upper extremity, if it comes from a person other than an identical twin, they have to have their immune system uh, suppressed Mm -hmm. using anti-rejection medications uh, to allow them to keep the organ and not to reject it. Uh, so my and role, even if it's not an organ, even if it's, if it's a face, you have to do it. Correct. And we consider face and hands as organs at this time. We're a wonderful point in medicine where a kidney transplant is almost just like a daily occurrence, but this is a completely different game. I would imagine there's so much more emotional aspect that goes along with this. Correct. At this time, composite transplantation, which is for the most part entails upper extremities, hand or face, is not a routine procedure. It's only to be performed in very well-equipped centers for very well-selected individuals who may benefit from it. And in regards to a face transplantation, for example, we have to weigh the risks of the immune suppression that the person is going to be subjected to, to the benefit that they would gain from the procedure. So our surgical colleagues identify what could be done using conventional therapies. How can they restore the individual to the near normal function and aesthetic presentation using conventional procedures first. And if they don't find that that is going to be uh, sufficient for a particular individual, then the transplant physicians, including myself, will evaluate them for the risks of the immune suppression and then follow them post-transplant, you know, during and post-transplant. At this point, it certainly is not a routine procedure. It is a very complex surgical procedure. And the management of these patients post-transplant is also, at this point, still quite intricate. The skin rejects more commonly than any other organ. We have been fortunate that since 1998, we, with the current immune suppression, has allowed these or- organ transplants to proceed. Uh, but still, the long-term outcomes require careful monitoring. Uh, any complications that occur 
from immune suppression have to be um, identified as soon as they occur and interventions undertaken to try and gain the benefit of the procedure and mitigate the risks as much as possible. You asked also about the surgeon's uh, enthusiasm for perce- performing the procedure and and. Uh, as Doctor mentioned, we have a, a very thoughtful team here that includes uh, transplant uh, nephrologist, transplant psychiatrist, uh, social worker, uh, and many other and, and coordinators and other team members that have a heavy say in what ends up happening with the patient. So that's really uh, critical to success of what we do here at Mayo Clinic, the multidisciplinary approach of things. Um, the patients have to be. There are not so many patients that are candidate for face transplantation. I mean, there are many patients with anatomic defects that uh, that could be reconstructed with conventional techniques. That's the most common and will always be the most common. Uh, it's the patients that have, uh, that have anatomic defects that we know will require many procedures to reconstruct and will still end up with a very suboptimal result with a result that, you know, maybe after we know that after 15 procedures, the patient will still have a significant deformity, will still have a significant lack of optimal function, and in those patients, we may consider them for face transplantation. It's beyond that. The next step is if we have a patient with who we think is a good patient from an anatomic standpoint that would improve from the surgery functionally as well as aesthetically, then we would see if this patient is willing and and can truly give informed consent. Can this patient really understand the risks versus the benefits? Because this is a huge thing for us. None of us want to put someone through a procedure that they don't fully understand. Uh, we don't know with, with 38 procedures done around the world, nobody knows all the answers. So the patients have to be aware of, of that as well. So that's an important thing. And then Lastly, the team has to be willing to embark on this adventure with the patient. There's a lot of things that we don't know and a lot of issues that we know we will run into, and we want to have a patient, not just the surgeon, but we as a team all want to have a patient that we are able to work with throughout this this journey. When it comes to face transplants, there's actually a learning curve, and I can understand why only 38 done in the world. We're talking about face transplants, and the first one the Mayo Clinic has done with Dr. Samir Mardini and Dr. Hatem Amur. Time for a short break. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're talking about face transplant. And the first one that that has been done at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, our guests are Dr. Samir Mardini, plastic surgeon, and Dr. Hatem Amur, who is medical director of the Center for Reconstructive Transplant Surgery. Before we talk about the procedure itself with Dr. Mardini, tell us a little bit more about the evaluation of the patient. The medical side comes into play. We have a structured evaluation process, which can of two phases. The first phase is when a person is referred to us by one of our surgical colleagues that they may be a candidate for face transplant or upper extremity, for example. They come in, we assess their medical history, go through any past surgical procedures, any chronic medical conditions. We run a battery of tests to give us some baseline idea of their kidney function, heart function, their immunological situation. Um, They visit with social work, psychiatry, and then we come up with a set of questions that we need addressed, for example, or a certain set of questions that the patient wants addressed. Regardless of the outcome of that phase, 
as if the patient still wants to proceed with evaluation, we insist that they wait a minimum of three months before they see us again. Got to think it over. Correct. It's a yeah, cooling off sure period. Make sure they want to do it. A lot of information is given during that first phase. They have to have time to absorb it, connect with other individuals, learn what the options are. And then the second phase, they will come back for an, an ongoing evaluation to follow through with some of the findings that were found during the first evaluation and then um, address some other questions that come up at that point. Throughout the phases, the individuals are asked, what are they doing right now, what are they capable of doing, what they feel their life is limited by, what they think the transplant will accomplish, and what do they think may go wrong in the future, and how will they tackle that Mm -hmm. if the worst does occur. And what would be the worst? The worst would be a complete rejection of the organ and loss of the transplant. And and then they would be back to what they were like before or Worse, somewhat potentially worse. Potentially worse. It depends on what the injury was, and it depends on what was transplanted. So, Dr. Mendini, from your standpoint, was this done purely for cosmetic reasons, or did you hope to for the patient to regain some function, and if so, what function? Our patient's motivation for undergoing this procedure is mostly for function. Our patient didn't have teeth. He wasn't able to chew. He was having a really hard time in in restaurants or with people where he had to spend more than an hour trying to dissolve the bite by sucking on it for a while. This was a major issue for him. He had issues with breathing. He he didn't have any areas open for for breathing through his nose, Um, and he wanted to swim. He wasn't. He was at risk for aspirating, for having water going to his lungs when he swam, and that was a big motivation for him. And of course, aesthetically, it's a huge deal for these patients because they're 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 going into an elevator with a with a, a mother and her child, and the the child is looking and looking again, and then asking his mother what that what is looking at, mom, what's wrong with this with this patient? So so with this procedure of face transplantation. We're not reconstructing. We're actually restoring. You're taking someone with a severely deformed face and you're actually bringing them back to normal, as close to normal as humanly possible. I met with our patient. We were together with the patient, uh, Dr. Amer and I, in, uh, a few days ago. And we, we he's such a wonderful guy. We like talking to him. And we were just asking him how he's, uh, how he's feeling and how he's doing. And he's, his responses are... As from the aesthetical standpoint, he says, I'm completely blown away. Every time I pass by the mirror, I can't believe what I'm seeing. I never thought in my life that I would be able to see my face again like this. It's very touching. And when he was in, in an elevator with with a child, uh, just recently he said the child looked at him and looked away, and they kept on going like nothing ever happened. It just it gave him chills. He's very happy. He's doing well. He's back in the gym working out. Uh, he's starting to get facial uh, nerve, facial muscle function, so he's able to smile uh, to some degree more on one side than the other. We're waiting for the other side to recover. Uh, he's able to eat. He's, he's eating a steak. Um, he's able to eat whatever he wants now, uh, and that's that's really important for us. How long does that surgery take? Were you in there alone? Do you do this by yourself or do absolutely you have a little help? Not, absolutely not. This is a this is a team effort. It's a it's a major endeavor. It's a procedure that took us over fifty hours. Fifty? Fifty hours to proceed. Straight? Or do- S- straight. So we, we have two operating rooms going at the same time. We're procuring the organ, the face. At the same time we're preparing the recipient to uh, to take the face because they 
our recipient has, like we talked about earlier, has the jaws that are reconstructed, other soft tissues that are reconstructed. So all of that has to be removed in, in order to fit in the face, the structures of the face. So those are happening concurrently, and we have a team of six surgeons, wow. uh, five plastic surgeons and one ophthalmologist who's an, specialized in oculoplastics to help us manage so the an eye, eye doctor. Yeah. An eye doctor. And so we have the team split up into two in each room, and the ophthalmologist and I are circulating between both rooms, and she's working on the eyelids, and I'm sort of controlling the pace of the operation and involved in, in, in many of the steps. So the procedure flows very well. We were, we were in the cadaver lab re- rehearsing and, and learning up. and practicing this procedure for 50 Saturdays over the last three and a half years. Okay. No well, you were prepared. 50 full Saturdays. When the procedure was was about to happen, none of us were nervous. None of us felt uncomfortable. Every member of the team, including the nurses and everybody else, was knew exactly what they were supposed to do. Um, they were comfortable in their role. Nobody felt that there was something that's going to come up that's going to be um, uh, a surprise. So, so we went into this procedure uh, with those two rooms going, one preparing and one procuring. And then once we we took the organ, then we were all together working on the reconstruction of our patient, the recipient. And at that point. Um, I had gotten advice from other surgeons who had done this multiple times to have forced breaks because everybody's very excited during the initial parts of the procedure and by the end of it when you need the most delicate parts to be done, everybody's exhausted. So we started having, once we got to the part where we were reconstructing and we had six surgeons, then we started having forced breaks. It's one thing to donate, again, a kidney or a liver, but when part of what you're asking is for the part that looks like their loved one that they've just lost, is that a different discussion for the donor's family? Of course. Uh, When someone signs their donor card or designates themselves as a donor on a driver's license, at this time we cannot ever presume that they understood that they're going to be donating a face or an upper extremity. So for face transplantation, it's a separate consent process. The organ procurement organization, which handles all organ allocation for deceased donors in, the, in, the, in our area, had a strict protocol of uh, when to approach families for this gift. Sure. And um, it's only if the family gives explicit permission that they would consider their loved one as a potential face uh, donor, then they would proceed with any further steps. Does the patient bear a resemblance now to the donor? Because of the complexity of the surgery that's done and the different bone structures, um, essentially the outcome is really a composite between both. You know, what an amazing story. And thank you both for uh, sharing it with us. You know, uh, 50 Saturdays in the cadaver lab doesn't sound like much fun to me, but congratulations for doing it. Thanks for all of your great work and both of you, Dr. Samir Mardini and Dr. Hatem Amur, the first facial transplant at the Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you very much. It's a true pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, kids and screen time. How much is too much? And later on the show, we'll hear from an expert on the help that's available for domestic abuse victims. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. 
When you have a respiratory illness, you might think, well, you know, I've got a bad cold. I'll get over it. But Dr. Vandana Bide says sometimes you don't get better. If somebody's coughing up a lot of stuff, may just be the tail end of a cold, but if it doesn't go away, it may be a pneumonia. Pneumonia, a lung infection, comes in two forms, bacterial, which can often be treated with antibiotics, and viral, which can't. It's tough to tell the difference. Both can cause symptoms that include fever, cough, shortness of breath, and both make you feel run down. The strain called walking pneumonia causes similar symptoms, but you're still able to push through the day. That's caused by a very specific bacteria. It is treatable. Doctors diagnose pneumonia by lab tests and chest x-rays. The pneumonia vaccine helps protect you against certain strains. And now in other news, results of a new Mayo Clinic survey show most Americans are working to improve their heart health. Heart disease is still the number one killer of men and women, and that's according to Dr. John Wald. He's medical director of public affairs at Mayo Clinic. He says the encouraging news is people People are taking action and making changes that can have a positive impact on their cardiovascular fitness. Now, according to the latest Mayo Clinic National Health Checkup, three-quarters of Americans abstain from smoking to prevent heart disease, while nearly two-thirds exercise regularly or eat specific heart-healthy foods. Men were more likely to exercise to improve their health, and women were more likely to alter their diet to improve their health. Results also show when there is a family history of heart disease, cardiovascular health becomes even more focused. More than 1,000 people participated in the latest Mayo Clinic National Health Checkup conducted by phone in mid-December. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, you know, screens are everywhere. From the, We're talking television yeah. screens, computer screens, the smartphone that we all carry around. But that <laughs> means that controlling your kids' screen time is harder than ever. You can say that again. you got a couple of them. Yeah, I do. You know. So what is a reasonable guideline when it comes to TV watching or playing video games or... Smartphones. <laughs> Here to discuss kids and screen time is Mayo Clinic pediatrician Dr. Angela Matkey. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Matkey. Thanks for having me. Dr. Matkey, good to see you. So we want to know, what do the experts say? What is an appropriate amount of time for your kid, depending on their age, of course, <laughs> to spend on their phone, their computer, at the TV, etc.? Yeah, the guidelines. What do we yeah. need to know? Absolutely. So like, as you touched on, it really depends on the age of the child. So the American Academy of Pediatrics recently came out with new recommendations that looked at different guidelines and taking a more pragmatic and evidence-based approach than they had had in the past. Um, as you mentioned, screen time is everywhere. Screens are everywhere, and children are being exposed from birth on. Um, and so what we started to look at is how media and ex- especially the new digital media, can affect young minds. And so when we look at 18 months to 24 months, the recommendations is still really not to proactively engage in screen time. But if families do decide to do it, we, we gave some more guidelines based on, on recent evidence. And so if families decide to do it, they really we recommend that they do it with high-quality educational programming, first of all. And then also the most important caveat is that they're doing it along with their child. Oh. They're sitting there next to them because children in that age – they don't have the developmental capacity to be able to use that two-dimensional interface and to be able to incorporate it into new developmental milestones and outcomes. So from 18 months to two years old, that's what the recommendation is. What about 
before 18 months? We still recommend no screen time before 18 okay. months, with one exception again. Mm-hmm. So those interactive devices such as FaceTime or Skyping, they have been shown to be somewhat helpful in helping that social communication develop. Oh. But like I mentioned again, kids don't really have that capacity in that age group to be able to incorporate in what they're seeing, help them determine some of their social and developmental milestones. And so you need to have that parent sitting next to them and explaining what they're seeing so they can help incorporate it and, and into kind of a three-dimensional picture for them and and help advance their milestones. So this is what I do with my children with FaceTiming. You know, we're sitting there. You can teach them new words and, and work on some of the other developmental milestones in that setting, but media shouldn't be used as a babysitter in this age group. What about the yeah. two years old to three or four years old? So they've actually switched the, um, those guidelines as well. It, between two and five years of age, we used to say two hours or less of screen time per day, but that has changed to one hour or less of screen time per day because we really want children to focus on other areas of their development. And so So much of their development is learned through social play and interactions that if they're spending two hours or more, they're not getting enough time to just work on some of those skills. And additionally, we see that more than uh, one hour of screen time in two-year-olds has been associated with increased elevations in their BMI. And so this is not surprising to us as pediatricians. So their weight. Their yeah, weights, yeah. exactly. Yep, we're seeing we're seeing unhealthy weights associated with even more than one hour of screen time, and that was a large part that was taken into account of the recommendations for one hour or less in this age group. And does this include all of the screens, like mom's smartphone plus the television <laughs> plus yes. the minivan? screen in the back that in all that total one hour it's all of it it's considered recreational screen time so we're not including when they're in like in the older children when they're in the the school or educational setting um, because we're using screen times for their teaching their education for their the research projects and things like that it's including recreational screen time that they're doing for their own enjoyment all right so from two years old to five years old one hour or less what about the situation where i'm almost seeing a pacifier where if the line is long Mm -hmm. and the kid is getting see that you give them the smartphone. Yeah, that is um, a huge problem that we're seeing because kids are not developing that social emotional regulation piece that's really important. So it, I think there's certain situations where that's appropriate, you know, long airplane flights, um, medical procedures, things like that. But you don't, you also don't want to use it in place of a simple hug or a kiss. So allowing your children to be frustrated and to be upset is an okay thing. You need to start to implement that early and not reach for the smartphone and turn on the YouTube video. So yes. then what about five <laughs> years old to what? Five years old to, you know, 18 is okay. generally where we say after 18, you're an adult. So we recommend that these children are still two hours or less per day. The majority of children are not getting this. The majority of children are getting much, much more. And we do recognize that there are benefits to some of this new digital media. Um, but there's also, you know, side effects and there, there's detrimental effects to it. And that's where that line in the sand has been drawn. Um, as we start to see more and more um, hours of screen time per day, we see effects in their weight. We can see um, detrimental effects in their mental health. Um, we can see it affecting their sleep and also some of their social interactions with their parents um, and, uh, and friends. No, wait a minute. We're talking about between <laughs> ages of 5 and 18. Now, does this include texting? This includes and Facebook time yes, and yes, everything, yes. two hours or less per day. It is. It now, is. I tell me your kids are even close to that. Oh, sure. We follow <laughs> all of the guidelines at our house. It is Minecraft and it is texting. Right. TV is not an mm-hmm. important media source for kids. It's all the other gaming um, resources, their, their smartphone interactions that they're having with their friends. It's the FaceTiming, the texting that all adds up to continuous media exposure throughout the day. 
And upwards of 25% of children um, or teens are saying that they do actually feel addicted, that they cannot go without having their screen time. And that's why we, we're starting to recommend having screen-free zones, and not only with the kids, but as parents. As you mentioned, you know, mm-hmm. mom's cell phone. Same with myself. Mom's mm-hmm. cell phone, dad's cell phone. Putting those aside and having screen-free zones so you can interact with your children um, and setting times during the day where you maybe wouldn't be using those. Everyone puts their smart device down. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it can can lead to some, some benefits. And I'm not saying get rid of everything. I think using a pragmatic approach and really looking at maybe ourselves first as parents and trying to set it as role models is is, is harder to do, but something that, that I know that I'm trying to look at as a parent. You know, those uh, recommendations seem almost unrealistic, at least based on what I see from my kids. Do you have any idea how uh, the average teenager, how many hours per day they spend with screen time? About five to six hours per day, the average teenager. If you're talking about their texting use and all the other social applications, most teens are on multiple different applications at one time. We call it multimedia, multitasking. How do you keep kids from being addicted to their phone? So I think starts starts early, kind of setting expectations about what's what you guys are going to allow. The American Academy of Pediatrics have come up with a, a media, family media plan where you can go to um, healthychildren.org and you can do to the family media plan. And it helps you as a family come up with reasonable guidelines and expectations. I have it bookmarked on my computer right now. <laughs> Healthychildren.org. Yep, I've got yes. it right here. Yeah, because they, they realize this is hard to do. I mean, I c- well, because we didn't grow up practicing it ourselves. Exactly. It's something that you have to learn as a family mm-hmm. of how we're going to do it. Yeah, not easy being a parent. And it, it, it is truly interesting how dependent they become on their, I mean, I, I think if I told my kids that they have, would have to put their phones down for an hour, there might be pandemonium. There might be havoc. There might be a strike at our house. <laughs> hey, what do you do? How do you know that the programming is educational? Going back to you, you said educational programming right. for the littles. There's a uh a website called Common Sense Media, and they have rated different apps and TV programming and, and other media sources about whether they're educational or not and whether evidence has gone into to using that. Anything from PBS.org um, uh, has really high educational content and a very pro-social message. And that is, is recommended by the American Academy of Pediatrics that if you're, if you're going to use these, these are great ones to do. And there's actually evidence that it teaches kids not only social behaviors and communication behaviors, but even some of the basic uh, school readiness. All right. There's good stuff at pbs.org. You can go to health, healthychildren.org. And then the other website you Common mentioned, commonsensemedia.org. Yes. Commonsensemedia.org. All right. Well, there you got the lowdown, the latest recommendations from the American Academy of Pediatrics and Mayo Clinic pediatrician, Dr. Angela Mackey. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we'll discuss the difficult topic of domestic abuse. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, here's a troubling statistic. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, one in four women will experience severe physical violence by an intimate partner during their lifetime. Now, domestic violence involves violence or abuse by one person against another in a family or an intimate relationship. And domestic violence, of course, isn't limited to just women. It can happen to anyone regardless of age or gender. 
In fact, over three million children each year in the U.S. experience or witness abuse at home. Here to discuss domestic abuse is Denise Morcom. Denise is a licensed social worker at Mayo Clinic with more than 15 years of experience working with victims of domestic violence and abuse. Welcome to the program, Denise. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Denise, good to see you. I know that this is a huge problem and we're glad to have someone on the radio to talk about it. But I guess before you can intervene or help someone, you actually have to realize or recognize there is a problem. So how long has it been that it was deemed appropriate to ask people if they feel safe at home? I think it was the 1980s when we began educating the medical professionals to always ask during visits whether they're safe at home or not, safe to return home. Is it surprising to patients? Well, I think they've become more used to it mm-hmm. now. What about elderly mm-hmm. abuse? Yeah, it certainly is an issue, and many of the shelters are now reserving beds for elderly patients as well. Um, I've also worked in hospice, and so it's certainly something we paid attention to and saw a significant number where family members are taking financial advantage of elderly or physically neglecting them or abusing them. There's lots of things that are included here. Mm-hmm. Physical, um, emotional, that the financial one is one I had not thought of. Mm-hmm. Um, when it's with your with a partner, with a significant other, it's there's sexual abuse that can be part of it. Absolutely. Is there any of those that is more common than another that you're usually working with patients, or are they just all over the board? Well, they are all over the board, but I would imagine the emotional and verbal are most prevalent and then least identified because people don't always self-identify that as abuse. Um, but when it becomes physical, even then they don't identify um, shoving or tripping or restraining as abuse either. Many uh, people wait until it's a punch in the face or threatened with a weapon to actually identify it as abuse. So you really have to do education rather than just say, are you being abused? Because probably 70% of them would think what they're going through isn't abuse. And I think it's like 30% of women are currently in abusive relationships and so but they hesitate to disclose it even to medical professionals so it's still got a lot of stigma attached to it. But when you ask the question, do you feel safe at home, don't you think most patients take that to mean are they being physically abused? Yes. But there is this uh, segment of that population, uh, abuse population, that it, where it isn't physical abuse, it's sexual or emotional. Mm-hmm. Is that, in fact, more common than physical abuse? Uh, the emotional and verbal is more common, I would say, and sexual abuse, hopefully, the least common, but still very prevalent. So how, how do these patients get referred to you, and how do you determine, what questions do you ask to figure out that there is, in fact, a problem? Well, um, I can answer that two ways. My history with domestic violence was working in shelters, and so that's a very specific population in and of itself. Most of the population has resources that would allow them not to end up in a shelter. Middle class and upper class women or men are also abused, but they have credit cards, they have friends, they have relatives, they have coworkers, um, and it's who we see in the shelter are more often poor, poor people with multiple issues. So how does 
um, domestic abuse affect your overall health? Obviously, that's why a health care provider is asking the question. Sure. Um, so they can, one uh, easy way to tell is frequent visitors, so multiple injuries. They receive double the medical attention that the average person would. Um, so it's headaches, it's uh, blatant injuries like broken bones, broken fingers, bruises, um, but they have more stomach issues, more headaches. Um, they'll have mental health issues, chemical health issues, depression, anxiety, or call it I'm having some relationship issues or yes, I'm under stress. So the beginning of it is can be very vast, and so it's really the follow-up questions by the provider that um, gets down to more specifics, and then building that relationship over time builds trust, and they may say no the first time, but maybe the third or fourth time mm-hmm. they start to disclose more. So when you when a patient is referred to you, how does the interview proceed? What what do you what questions do you ask them? Well, if providers, the doctors, are suspicious of abuse or something doesn't seem quite right, they will make a referral to the clinical social workers on staff, mm-hmm. and then we do a psychosocial assessment. So we built we do more of the relationship building and talk about. Um, their finances, their health, um, their relationships, their support systems, um, just kind of open the door that way. Mm-hmm. And they will, and I even start to define abuse. So I never say, are you abused? I say, does anyone, has anyone hit you? Do they call you names? Are they angry a lot? You know, can you tell me more about the stress in your relationship? So kind of broaden it out more. And, and then once you determine that there is, in fact, abuse in the in the relationship or with another family member, what do you do? I'll provide further education, kind of empower them that they shouldn't be treated that way. I understand that they love or care about their partner. Are they willing to bring their partner in for some counseling? Mm-hmm. Do they know that there's shelters available, that there is orders for protection that they can get if they want to leave? And as we're wrapping up here, what if, what should you do if you suspect that someone that you, you know, you love or you work with or someone that you know if, uh, is a victim of some abuse? Yeah, it's very difficult because, as you've probably heard, the statistics are like they leave seven times before it's actually over. And so you want to stay a friend and an advocate to them and not give them ultimatums like, if you don't leave him, don't talk to me, because that just further limits their resources. So, again, you provide support, encouragement, resources, all right, and what about if you yourself feel that you're a victim of abuse? Um, you can reach out to therapists, social workers. Um, there are shelters in virtually every community or not too far away. And there really is this wonderful network, at least in Minnesota, called Day One, where they all the shelters communicate with each other every day about open beds so that if you make a call to a shelter, they can get you the police or a taxi and actually get you to a shelter, and then they'll find an open bed for you and 
start the process. All right. Difficult work that you do, but we're so glad that you do it because there's so many people who need your help. Difficult topic, domestic abuse from Ms. Denise Morcom, licensed social worker, Mayo Clinic. Thanks so much for being with us. Mm -hmm. Thank you for having me. That's our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.